You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Paul C. Taylor. Paul is an associate professor of philosophy and African-American studies and associate dean for undergraduate studies at Pennsylvania State University. His research interest is in aesthetics, race theory, African-American philosophy, and pragmatism. Some of his books include On Obama and Race, A Philosophical Introduction. His latest book is entitled Black is Beautiful, A Philosophy of Black Aesthetics. In this episode, we talk black invisibility, art and politics, authenticity and cultural appropriation, beauty and race, and so much more. Hi, Paul, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm grateful for the opportunity. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on. Paul, tell me, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, it was the only thing that really interested me in college. I was meant to be a medical doctor because that's what my father was and that's what his father was. Hmm. And that's what I started out on my way to being. And I suddenly realized halfway through freshman year of the biology for major sequence that I was bored out of my mind. And the first class I took after I realized that was intro to philosophy. And I realized, hey, I get to think about stuff instead of just memorizing things. And the rest is history. Did you ever have a temptation to do philosophy of science or biology or anything? I did. That was one of the things that attracted me to it. I thought, you know, I could do philosophy of anything. I'm interested in science. That's one of the things that drew me to biology. I could do philosophy of biology. I can, I'm interested in art. I can do philosophy of art and so on and so forth. If I could have a chat with that young man now, I would say, well, the reason you're bored in biology is you're not really paying attention because there's all sorts of ways to inhabit that space creatively and in imaginative ways. Uh, for better or for worse, here I am. Well, I'm glad we got you. We took you from science. Well, you're very kind. Paul, I picked up your book, your new book, Black is Beautiful, A Philosophy of Black Aesthetics. And uh, I want this podcast to, to kind of focus on the contents of that book. You talk about you talk about uh, the problem of, of racial invisibility in the book. So tell me, what is this philosophical problem of, of racial invisibility? Well, on a certain level, it, it's what it sounds like. On another level, it's the kind of thing that towering artists like Ralph Ellison and Toni Morrison and, and towering thinkers and critics like Michelle Wallace have written about. Um, it's a kind of multi-layered problem that has to do with the degrees to which and ways in which people of color tend not to register properly in certain kinds of social contexts. So the kinds of consideration and regard you, and concern you show to your fellows in society somehow just gets by certain of us. And uh, in varying ways, that's what the problem of invisibility is. So if you think about those famous opening lines from passages from Ellison's Invisible Man, right, there's that strange encounter on the street with the guy who bumps into him. And the guy's surprised, like, oh, I didn't even see you there, right? Some version of that, that that's kind of the urtext, one version of it anyway, for problem of invisibility. It's just that black folk in particular don't register as persons or as people with perspectives 
or as people with with subject positions that are worth considering in ethical transactions, right? We just don't register. Tell, tell me a little bit more about how how Ralph Ellison and Toni Morrison in particular has informed your thinking about black invisibility. It actually started with Morrison. Uh, so I, like a, a lot of people, encountered both of these texts in high school and didn't know what to make of them because we weren't given the resources to understand them properly, I think, uh, at least in my high school. And so the first one I came back to as, as someone with more resources to bring to bear on them was Morrison. And I read The Bluest Eye. And, you know, that text is animated by this remarkable phenomenological reflection, right, that involves this young woman finding herself in a position in which she's completely unable to register her own personhood in a certain way, right? She desperately wants blue eyes, which she doesn't have, which being a certain kind of person she's not going to have unless she has technological interventions of certain kinds, right? Um, And she cannot imagine herself as beautiful for that reason, and other people have the same issue with her. And so that's where it started for me. And, And so that's not Ellison's invisibility problem yet, right? That's a deeper problem. That's the kind of thing Fanon writes about. That's a kind of internalized inability to register your own subjectivity and personhood and worth and value, right? So that's where it started for me. And then Morrison goes on and talks about this in other contexts. And so the, the version of it I get from her is about the inability to register black perspectives, right, or personas. She talks about it later on in, in Playing in the Dark in connection with this remarkable passage from Hemingway, right, which is meant to stand in for all sorts of ways in which black folk don't show up in literature, except as devices of a certain kind, plot devices or narrative devices, machinery. Uh, the easiest way to think of this is, you know, the generations of North Atlantic literature that describes characters in racially unmarked terms until they get to the Negroes. And then it's the Negro did this, right? Or the black person did this, whereas everyone else is just Fred and Tom and Sar- Sally, right? So that's the sort of clearest point of entry to that kind of invisibility. It's, it's paradoxically a kind of hyper-visibility, right? You're invisible as a person. You cannot be racially unmarked because you're hyper-visible as a racial object, right? A racialized object. And so then I came back to Ellison, who gives you an interesting way of thinking through sort of the more basic um, or more straightforward versions of this peculiar failure to register another person's presence, there's a new movie coming out. I don't know when it's going to come out. There's been a lot of controversy behind it. And it's the biopic on Nina Simone. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be, oh, we have a movie about Nina Simone. So it seems to be kind of a representation or an example of black visibility, right? It's telling a story about a proud black woman. But it's become very controversial, particularly the person who was playing it and what this person had to do in order to, to play the role. How do you think that this film contributes to Nina Simone's erasure as opposed to her visibility? Well, the first thing to say is I, like you, have not seen the film. I don't know if it's out. It's been on its way out for years and years and years and years. There was considerable controversy when the film was, when the cast was announced. People, many people were concerned that Zoe Saldana was probably not the right person for this. Other people were concerned that the first group of people, the people in the first group were concerned because aren't we past all this now? We're post-racial, blah, blah, blah. And so that's been brewing for a while. And, and as that has dragged on, I confess, I've lost track of things. I think it's supposed to come out later this fall. Okay. So I've not seen it. I've not read the screenplay in a while. I read it, a version of it. I think it was tweaked afterwards. I read it when I was writing the book. So these are all caveats, right? The film could turn out to be this wonderful thing that none of us is expecting. I doubt that will be the case. Uh, but here, here are the worries, right? The worries are, first of all, that... 
Nina Simone is a very particular kind of figure, figure in Africana cultural history, right? Her politics matter to who she is, right? That's why we remember her because in part because of her politics and the way she connected them to her cultural her culture work, right? And the way black people af- appear physiognomically, phenomenologically in the world is central to her politics, right? That's why her appearance changed over time. She changed her hairstyle, she changed her clothing. And so these things matter to who Nina Simone is. And if you want to tell the story, it's very difficult to tell the story of Nina Simone as such while abstracting away from those things that matter about her. And so this is the way I raise the word. So it's not that Zoe Saldana is an evil person. It's not that she's a bad actress. It's not that she's unfit to play a role of this stature. It's that the kind of body that inhabits this role matters because of what the role is. Now, we're on the precipice of a, a great many complicated questions in aesthetics, right? There are lots of lots of interesting and important questions about the ethics of interracial casting and this sort of thing. Does it matter if we restage King Lear in 15th century Japan, for example, right? What does that do to the narrative? There are stories to tell about this. I think we can distinguish some cases from others. But if in no other case, it matters in this case and cases like it, where racial politics is bound up with the identity and nature of and historical importance of the figure being portrayed and the casting that we undertake to make this, to bring this thing to the screen abstracts away from what makes the figure being portrayed important. That's, that's a problem. And so, and then there's very briefly the minor problem that apparently the screenplay completely abstracts away from Nina Simone's politics. It, It becomes a kind of family romance. It's all about her family and her personal life and the politics, I'm told, drops out. So that's kind of a problem. You allude to this a little bit in your book. How about when people from other races, particularly are playing historical parts that are people of color, right? But it's white people who are playing those roles. Mm-hmm. And and what do you think about black people playing historical roles of people who are, who are white? These are the, the interesting and hard questions that I mentioned we were on the verge of of approaching. Um, it would be hard to take them up with the care they deserve right now in this sort of setting, but we can probably begin to draw some distinctions, right? So Kevin Costner did the Robin Hood movie a number of years ago, and he threw Morgan Freeman in as a, I think he was an itinerant Muslim uh, mercenary or something. So that sort of thing sometimes gets the fanboys upset, right? Because they think you're tinkering with the essentials of the narrative. There were similar worries about a woman from X-Men, so there were similar worries about that, even though the racial identity of the characters was marked in a certain way in the novels. People got to the films and they saw the casting and they were worried, right, that you're being politically correct. with it, right? So there's that set of worries, and I don't care so much about those. Those aren't interesting cases. The interesting question for me is the role that race and racial identity and racial politics play in the structure and machinery of the narrative, Right. So there, you can imagine ways in which whiteness, the idea of whiteness might be central to King Lear, but you can also imagine ways in which it's not, right? It, it's a story that can be, in a certain way, self-contained. It's an iconic story about the kinds of Shakespearean themes that we're used to connecting with Shakespeare. And you can pick that up and drop it into any number of contexts, right, and retell that story. But you can't do that with Nina Simone, because what makes Nina Simone Nina Simone is a, a certain way of intervening in certain moments of 
racial politics, right? King Lear is not about an intervention in a certain kind of racial project. Nina Simone is. And so that's the dividing line for me. If we can tell a story about a narrative that allows us to bracket for, at least provisionally, questions about racial politics, even if we could tell that story in a slightly different mood, then that's one thing. And maybe the cross-racial or interracial casting question unfolds in one way. But in, in cases like the Nina Simone thing, that's different, right? If you want to do a Martin Luther King movie and you make a white guy Martin Luther King, I'm going to have an issue with that because that's different, right? But yeah, if you, if you make Richard III black and you set it in 16th century West Africa, I can see that, right? I can imagine that story. I can't imagine a white Martin King, at least not on the standard case, right? So one of the interesting things about art is, of course, we can imagine all kinds of things. And so you can imagine a very sort of transgressive way of telling the civil rights, you know, middle of the 20th century U.S. civil rights story that would require a white Martin King. And so maybe there's a way to do that. But if we're imagining anything like a more or less realistic classic Hollywood narrative treatment, you're not going to get a white King. It's just not going to work. We're living in an era of, of social protests, a kind of a different era of social protests, being that we have Twitter and social media. So I want to talk about artists and, and protests. Can and should politics and what we call kind of expressive culture relate to each other? Can they? Definitely. Should they? Depends on the context, I think. Uh, we can draw a connection, I think, between the last question and this one. Uh, one thing I could have said and probably should have said in relation to the last thing about the casting issue is that there's a, a issue of straightforward sort of workplace politics that Michelle Wallace writes very eloquently about. She calls it racialized restraint of trade, right? And so there are ways in which we construct the institutional features of the relevant art worlds, right? Whether it's the painterly art world or the world of Hollywood film casting, so that opportunities are asymmetrically distributed, right? Uh, so white people and people who are closer to white get more jobs more often than people who look like the people we might have gotten to play Nina Simone. And if we then take the jobs that the people who might, who might have played Nina Simone ought to get by virtue of the nature of the character and give those to white or white looking people, then that worsens the problem of racialized restraint. And so that's one point of entry for racializing aesthetic considerations. This is where Du Bois enters in the classic address that became an essay, Criteria of Negro Art. He says, look, you people want to talk about art for art's sake. Let me tell you about the politics of the art world in virtue of which this Negro woman who wanted to be a sculptor couldn't get into the sculpting school and couldn't do this and couldn't do that. That's what civil rights activism is for, because politics cannot be separated from the gatekeepers right, who shape the institutions that give us or that frame our aesthetic enterprises and practices. So, so right there already, our aesthetic practices are politicized, right, unavoidable. And so then the question is, how much more politicization is there and, and should there be? So you have people like Bayard Rustin, who famously decided at a certain moment at the tail end of what we usually think of as the classic phase of the mid-century U.S. 20, uh, 20th century civil rights movement. That cultural politics stuff was nice. Now it's time for real politics. And other people said, well, no, right? The real politics requires cultural politics so that our imaginations are not constrained by the limitations of politics as it stands. And so you're going to have these debates and how they come out at any particular moment is a function of what's going on in that context, what the issues are, what the, what the political horizon is, what's possible in that moment and in that space. So there, I don't think there's a general answer to how much and, and when and, and how artists should engage in politics. The only general answer is that it's, it's inappropriate to artificially exclude art from politics because they are always bound up together. 
There was controversy online with the rapper Little Bow Wow <laughs> and also ASAP Rocky. And both of them had kind of similar comments. Little Bow Wow said because he was mixed that he really had, I guess in so many words, had no obligation to kind of speak out about these kinds of issues, racial issues that is. And ASAP Rocky simply said because it was his accumulated wealth and the world in which he now lives that racial oppression is just not his reality. If not in their art, do artists, particularly those from oppressed communities, do they have an obligation to speak out? I'm hesitant to impose obligations on artists as artists, right? I mean, because part of the point of being an artist is that you uh, are free to explore your, the world in whatever way your muse requires um, or suggests. Uh, I, I would think as responsible, so there, there are questions to ask about their duties as responsible citizens as, and as engaged participants in the worlds they inhabit that will take us some distance towards answering these questions, right? It's just foolish to say because I'm mixed, right? Not for any other reason. If, if that's the reason that's doing the work, then it's an expression of confusion to say that I therefore have no obligation to talk about this stuff. That can't be the reason. Maybe there's some other reasons. I got other stuff to do, or I'm going to let other people who are better informed talk about this stuff. But just because I'm mixed can't be the reason, because we can tell all kinds of stories about the way racial formation processes work in certain settings, in virtue of which people who are mixed, while they might fare well in one setting, fare poorly in another, right? So that can't be the reason that's doing the work. And if you think it is, then you're just confused, right? But again, there are, there are questions to ask about what it means for responsible citizens to engage sensibly with their surroundings, right? If I, and, and how you answer those questions about the duties of responsible citizens will depend on your other kinds of political convictions and ethical commitments. And so we, we probably can't go down that road here. Uh, my sense is, given my political commitments and ethical convictions, that if I'm going to be a, a minimally responsible democratic citizen, I have to be to some degree tuned in to the way the world works. And the more opportunity I have to influence the world to work in better ways rather than worse, the more likely it is that I have an obligation to act in some way. So for me, again, given the political and ethical commitments I have, which are not the ones everyone has, I think it's unfortunate that until recently, if one even counts recent events, that our professional athletes have remained, strangely, some of us would think, silent on the issues of the day. That has changed to some degree recently, but until very recently, it was very hard to find these very rich young people with immense public profiles willing to say anything interesting about the world around us. That to me is unfortunate. Whether that's a matter of obligations or a failure to act on an opportunity to go above and beyond the ethical call, those are harder, more detailed questions about ethics. In the book, you not only talk about visual art or music, you also talk about the black body and you talk about what you call the beauty gap. What is the beauty gap? How do you think, contrary to popular assumptions, that the beauty gap is not narrowing, right? Because there are some people may say, well, the beauty gap is narrowing. Having natural hair is considered beautiful, more beautiful than it was 10 years ago. Tatiana did a video recently with Kanye West. She's a black woman, and the whole video is just this black woman exercising and dancing, and people went on social media just admiring her body. But you, you want to suggest that, contrary to this assumption, the beauty gap is not narrowing. Why so? Well, so uh, my dear friend and colleague, Eddie Glaude, has written a wonderful book called Democracy in Black. And at the heart of that book, he puts an idea called the value gap. And the idea behind that is that uh, there is a kind of comprehensive divide between the way places like the U.S. value 
white people and the way they value people who are not white. A uh, very simple idea, but very powerful idea because we can see it playing out in all sorts of domains. Uh, we see it playing out less often in the kinds of ways it used to in the grainy civil rights footage from the mid 20th century U.S. civil rights movement, right? In terms of explicit acts of oppression and aggression based on race. We see it playing out more often in, in terms of the things psychologists invite us to talk about now in terms of implicit attitudes and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's there and we see it. One way we can see it is in is by tracking all the other gaps, right? We can track the achievement gap and the gap between the mortgage rates that similarly situated people of different rates get, right, under test conditions that social scientists have employed, right? And so there are all these, these gaps. And the beauty gap is one other version of this deeper sort of values gap. And the idea, of course, is that there are all sorts of ways in which uh, people who are socialized by appeal to hegemonic aesthetic norms, norms of bodily aesthetics, uh, in places like the U.S., there are all sorts of ways in which we have decided and act as if people of color are less attractive than white people. Now, is this as much the case as it used to be? Well, no, of course not. Uh, but we, in deference to the thought that our way of engaging the, this version of the value gap has changed, we spend this sort of false narrative. We say it used to be the case that black bodies were universally demonized and despised, and now that's changed because we desire them. They are objects of desire, and we can, we, right, James Baldwin's we, right, the sort of um, abstract, hegemonic American subject, right? Uh, there are all these ways in which we now credit the beauty of black bodies, to which I and many other scholars, I'm not the first one to talk about this, say, well, just look at the history and you'll find that black bodies were always desired, right? The desire was just bound up with all sorts of weird other things, right? So Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, if that's about anything, it's about desire. It's about lots of other things, yeah. of course, about power. It's about all kinds of things. But, I mean, you can see this in Jefferson's notes in the state of Virginia. He talks about the, the tragedy of these boisterous passions overcoming white people and they're put in this situation where they've got a wolf by the ears and they can't let go and all of that. This is an expression of the very peculiar kind of ambivalence that's, that's at the heart of white supremacy that can bind together desire and aversion all at once. And so we see this. So it can't just be linear progress from black bodies were despised to black bodies are desired. It has to be more complicated than that. And so my suggestion is that that complexity is something we can track from the beginning of the U.S. to now, and it plays out in different ways. But the one thing it does not do is give us a kind of linear progress narrative. And so if you look at the things that are meant to be markers of progress now, right, the example I use in the book is Beyonce's on the cover of GQ. That happened, I think, three years ago or five years ago. That wouldn't have happened 15 years ago, right? But that can happen even as, in other contexts, black bodies are still demonized and despised and subject to aversive responses in ways that are mediated by aesthetic judgments, right? And so the, the sort of linear progress narrative is too simple, even though it is surely the case that things have changed. What do you say about the popular phrase that beauty's in the eye of the beholder, which is the idea that can't help who we find beautiful and who we are attracted to? Do you agree with this, this phrase? 
Or do you think that behind all of our attractions and, and all of our perceptions of beauty is this social undergrounding that we're unaware of? Yes, to all of the above. Yes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but the eye is a socially constructed phenomenon, right? And so, and this is to your second point, the eye is not an innocent eye. This is Tony Morrison's point, right? The eye, the bluest eye, is something that is an artifact of social processes unfolding in a certain way. And one of our burdens as responsible agents, as hopefully responsible agents, navigating our social terrain uh, sensibly and intelligently and critically, is to take responsibility for the persons that we become at the intersection of the various social forces that aspire to create us in uh, the old molds, right? And so this is when we have to distinguish first order and second order kinds of responses, right? There's, there's the beauty that my eye beholds, and then there's the critical reflection that I undertake to interrogate the eye that's doing this beholding, right? So it's not just a one-stage process. Yes, the beauty beholds things, the eye beholds things in a certain way, but then I can subject that process to criticism and self-criticism and self-reflection and say, I shouldn't respond in this way to that thing, right? And we've all had this experience in other contexts, or at least many of us, most of us, I hope, have had this experience. There are things we like, then we find out more about them, and we think, wow, gee, I probably shouldn't like that as much as I do. And then, lo and behold, it turns out we don't like it as much as we did because we know more about it. And the thing that we behold is now a different thing, and we can respond to it differently, even at the level of immediate, what John Dewey would have called immediate responses. So, yes, it is the case that on a certain level, your responses just are your responses. But as a critical being uh, that can cultivate virtue, right, better habits and dispositions, right, we have the opportunity, I would say at least in many cases, we have the burden, the obligation to subject ourselves to the kind of criticism that allows us to interrogate that immediate act of perception, right, and retrain our perception so that we have different responses. What if I find people from different races attractive, I find them beautiful, and I also date whoever? Have I transcended some racial barrier? Maybe. you transcended some barrier. You, you transcended the sort of minimal aversive barrier that would have ruled out a certain, a whole segment of the human population for you. So, yeah, you've transcended something and good for you. Uh, but <laughs> that probably wouldn't be the end of the story, right? Because then we have to ask questions about fetishization. We have to ask questions about what's going on in you when you, when you comport yourself in this way, right? Um, and these are the questions that, again, I want to suggest that people ought to ask themselves. So sometimes when we have these conversations, people either are or sound as if they are passing judgment on their fellows. And that's probably not usually a productive or an appropriate way to proceed. The way I prefer to think of it is that we're providing resources to our fellows to interrogate themselves. Because I don't know what's in your head. You probably don't know what's in your head until you think about it. This is why God invented therapy. And so what we do in these conversations about these kinds of things is give each other the resources to interrogate ourselves right, in our moments, our critical reflective moments, and say, well, why is it that I like this? Why is it that I only date white guys? Whatever race you are, right, why is it that this is where my affections and my attractions lead me? Is this something worth interrogating? Is this something that connects to other things about me? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. And so, yes, if I get to the point where I say, well, I see someone who's from a different race, and my, mo my mama wouldn't want me to date her, but oh, I can imagine it then maybe I've overcome something that I might have uncritically let govern my behavior. But that shouldn't be the end of the story. We're always, should always be subject to self-criticism and self-reflection. What is black music? That's it? That's the end of the question? <laughs> That's it.
That's it. All right. It's a short question, but it's a hard question, right? So the easy answer is the answer that I refuse at the beginning of my book. Uh, the easy answer is black music is whatever Negroes have produced, right? And so if a white person plays the blues, then that's a problem because black blues is black music and that belongs to black people, right? So then you've imported notions of cultural possession and property, what Stuart Hall would have called cultural insiderism. And that's not on a certain level, not interesting. It points us to interesting questions we have to ask, right? What are the politics, goes back to the things we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. What are the politics of the relevant art world in virtue of which certain people can participate in employment markets and so forth? Uh, that, those are interesting questions that have to do with, that inform judgments about cultural possessions. But as an abstract sort of philosophical matter in the, in the way that philosophical estheticians usually think about this, that's not where you want to begin. You don't want to start with ideas about cultural possession. So what is black music? For me, black music is uh, a label that, re that we can use in provisional and evolving ways to point to the musical practices that have specifiable, discernible roots in the musics of the African continent, certain parts of the African continent. And there are ethnomusicological stories to tell about this, right? There are certain kinds of practices that we can trace from West Africa to the Caribbean to the southern U.S. and so forth. And so that's where it starts for me. It's a straightforwardly, empirically verifiable or, or disconfirmable account of certain kinds of musical practices. But then it becomes a political question, right? So what is it that we pull from these historical traditions to continue the process of racial formation in, for example, liberatory context, right? So you see Tony K. Bambara telling a story about listening to James Brown in 1971 and that being the centerpiece of a community building effort in the black community in certain parts of the U.S. So it's a complicated question, but it's a question, maybe this is the way to put it. The question is in a certain way both harder and easier than it appears. It is harder than it appears because we'd like to be able to point once and for all to specific idioms and say that's black music then we can't do that. But it's easier than it appears because the burden is lighter. When we ask the question, what is black music, we sometimes act as if we want to answer that outside of a story about racial formation processes. For me, black music, that label points us to a set of phenomena that are bound up with racial formation processes. And so they're part of this contest over contest over racial meanings, part of this contest over how to distribute the benefits and burdens of social cooperations in a racialized society. And so it's an evolving thing that has specifiable roots, but that can grow in unpredictable directions. Black musical artists Jill Scott and Eve conducted an interview recently, and they were asked about the white rapper Iggy Azalea. And one of the things that they said is that instead of sounding like a black woman, in which they think that she does sound like a black woman when she raps, they wish that she sounded more like where she was from, which is Australia. They said that would be amazing. And clearly they are, they are pointing to the issue of authenticity. So I want to ask two questions. Are white people and others not being, quote unquote, authentic when they do black music or when they do it in the so-called black way? And is it always a practice of a cultural appropriation when they do? It's not always an invidious form of cultural appropriation. There's a rich story to tell about what cultural appropriation is, and I don't think we have told the story adequately yet. Uh, there's some very good work out there on it now, and there's more coming. But we typically use it as a term of criticism, right? To appropriate is bad in this way. And so I want to talk about that as invidious cultural appropriation. And it's not always invidious, right? This is what Alain Locke had in mind when he said cultures have no color. In a perfect world, a world in which 
ethno-racial boundaries weren't bound up with politics. Some of us think that that's unavoidable. That's what race is. Culture would work in racialized contexts the way it works in other contexts. People borrow things from each other. People steal things from each other, right? Mozart stole from Handel, right? That's just how culture works. And so it's difficult to start immediately talking about appropriation whenever somebody borrows something from another context or learns something from somebody who doesn't look like them. That's hard because that's just how culture works. But then when you build back in the politics, when you build back in the power asymmetries and the asymmetries in access and opportunity that come with racialized boundaries and terrain, then we start to get some traction for ideas about invidious cultural appropriation, right? So one way of raising the worry about Igius Alia is the way people used to raise the worry about Elvis, the way people raise the worry about Vanilla Ice, right? All of these white rappers, right? People used to raise the worry about Art Pepper, right? And modern jazz, uh, that these people are doing things People who look differently have done for a long time but didn't get credit for. But now you could put a white face on it and then look what happens, right? That's the work. And so it's, it's, it's Michelle Wallace's worry about restraint of trade. It's about unequal access to certain kinds of opportunities, right? Those opportunities are segregated by rape. And so that's where the worry comes in. We present it sometimes as a worry about the nature of the enterprise so and of the body, right? So a person with the wrong kind of body cannot perform in this performance, cannot participate in this performance tradition, right? It, it feels like a metaphysical claim. But my view is that it's better understood as the beginning of a political claim. It's an expression of skepticism about the degree to which the op relevant opportunities are equitably distributed. And so the worry is Iggy Azalea just ain't that good a rapper and nobody would care if she looked differently. And, you know, I'm not an expert in this performance tradition, so I don't know. I've, I've listened to her and I don't think she's interesting musically but but to me that's the interesting version of the worry right if if you looked like Shaniqua on the corner and you were making those noises nobody would care but because you look the way you do you get more attention which means you get more money which means you get more play which means you end up in a better place and that seems inappropriate how about the the issue of authenticity authenticity is really interesting and like everything else we're talking about, complicated, because there are different levels of it, different degrees of it. We talk about it in different ways in different contexts, right? Sometimes when we talk about authenticity, we're worried about something like fakes or forgeries, right? So you present something as one thing and it's really something else, right? But in other contexts, it's more straightforwardly an existential kind of consideration, right? That in some sense, participating in a certain performance tradition is not faithful to what you really are. And it's hard to tell that story unless you're committed to a certain kind of racial ontology. So Iggy Azalea is the kind of creature in virtue of which she cannot authentically participate in this performance tradition. Again, that's a hard story to tell. The easier story is the political one. And so where does authenticity fit into that? Well, this is where we might invoke a kind of existentialist ethic and say, well, it's incumbent upon Iggy Azalea to figure out, right, how she can in good faith inhabit this space, right? Does she really, has she really grappled with, right, the power relations that inform the, the culture, the space of cultural production that she inhabits, right, so that she can do that honestly and sincerely and so forth, right? So that's one way to get the authenticity question. And I think it's the only way, right? So then we're, we're thrown back onto the burden of self-interrogation, self-reflection, right? I can't tell you you're being inauthentic, right? But you can figure out for yourself 
whether you've entered into a productive relationship with the forces that make you who you are, right? And, at the, and behind all of this is the complexity that informs the very spaces we inhabit at these moments. So there's a wonderful book by a great historian named Charles Hughes called Country Soul. And in this wonderful book, he goes through the sites, the three principal sites at which R&B music was produced in the middle of the 20th century. And, and we can tell similar stories about the old blues uh, performers like Sun House, right? That, that the black performers that we think of as paragons of black music could play all kinds of things. Some of them loved country music and they wanted to play country music, but then they got funneled into this industry that was committed to a certain kind of racial politics in virtue of which the black guy can't play country music. He's got to play this new thing. We're going to call it R&B. And the white guy who hung out with the black guy can't play R&B. He's got to be a country musician. And so there are these moments at which we artificially, in a certain sense, uh, prop up the boundaries that allow us to raise the worry about authenticity. And so then we have to engage the question of where these boundaries are and the nature of black music at an even deeper level. And the authenticity question again, becomes a matter of interrogating your relationship to, among other things, certain kinds of power relations. So if I'm the white guy, Muscle Shoals, and I can sing Aretha's song the way Aretha sings it, but they won't let me record it, should I think this is just basic unfairness? Or should I accept the fact that, if it is a fact, that by virtue of my skin color, I have a different a prospect of a different relationship to certain kinds of opportunities and blah, blah, blah. Right, so we have to tell these stories in a fine-grained way by appeal to what's going on in those concepts. But they can't be simple stories about the metaphysics of certain bodies and the way those bodies inhabit certain cultural spaces divorced from politics. What are you currently listening to right now? Uh, I'm going back and listening to Janelle Monet. Um, I, like many of us, was, was shaken by the departure of Brother Prince. Oh, I've been listening to Janelle Monet and D'Angelo and everything that can that can get close to print. Uh, so, so that's what I've been doing lately. Let's say, for instance, uh, you were offered a book deal and here's where your options on content to write about. Right. You could either write about Eddie Murphy's SNL skits. You could write about the skits of In Living Color, particularly racial skits. Or you could write about the skits of Dave Chappelle. Which one would you choose and why? In a vacuum, that is to say, without regard to what else is in the market, I would choose Dave Chappelle. I say in a vacuum because I expect a lot of people would choose that. Um, and so, you know, it might get crowded out. But Dave Chappelle is interesting in the obvious ways. I mean, the racial politics were up front uh, to the extent that uh, they were up front in a very particular way. To the extent that the idea of post-racialism gets any traction from anyone who thinks responsibly about racial politics, it, I think, can only get traction as a way of talking about the way a certain kind of postmodernism figures into our way of thinking about racial politics and racialized aesthetic practices. That is to say, there's a moment at which it becomes uh, possible for people, by and large, right, not confined to you know, what some of our fellows would call, you know, the liberal East Coast elite or whatever. Right? But by and large, it becomes possible for people to think about racialized aesthetic meanings as grist for the mill of identity play, right? As resources to play with, as things that we can uh, adopt a kind of meta stance towards, right? And Dave Chappelle marks that moment. That's not 
true exactly for Eddie Murphy. It's becoming true for In Living Color at, at that moment. But Dave Chappelle makes it explicit and puts it at the heart of his work, right? Blind, black, white supremacist, right? The nigger family, right? The racial draft. All of that stuff is about the contingency, the provisionality, uh, but the deep, uh, the, the contingency and provisional nature of race and racial identity, but also about the deep hold that these things have over us, right? At the same moment, that's really interesting. And it's even more interesting when you figure out the way the story ended, right? When he, he seems to have decided that this identity play business wasn't so playful anymore, right? And the, and to me, this is the outcome of, of overzealous post-racialism in this sort of postmodern mode, right? That the things that we thought we were playful about, we aren't really so playful about, right? Because they're tethered to all sorts of other things. They're tethered to the history and the politics that I've been talking about the whole during our whole conversation. When you when that's the end of the story, or at least the end of one chapter or several chapters, then it becomes even more interesting. You don't have a moment like that exactly with the other figures, I think. Not to say that there are not rich and interesting things to say about those other uh, moments or those other cultural objects and the moments and figures and the, op- and the moments they represent. Uh, Eddie Murphy in particular, the way he was able to navigate Hollywood and the entertainment industry is, is remarkable. And there's great stories to tell there, but Chappelle would be the thing for me. Oh, thank you so much for this conversation. It was my great pleasure. Thank you for your fine questions and for this opportunity. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.